Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus, and I am your host, and for today's episode, a seafaring adventure and a bit of buried treasure. That's right, today I am exploring the king of pirate literature, the novel that defined pirate literature, Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, Something to highlight from the week past, and this week, actually a, a surprisingly fun one. I, sh- I shouldn't say surprisingly fun, I, I generally try to have fun with my life, but I say surprising because I went and saw for the first time Mousetrap, which is the longest running play in history. It's been running for over 70 years now, and it's written by none other than Agatha Christie, the queen of crime. Now, everyone says that they know what happens in this play, but I honestly had no idea, so I came in. Not sure what to expect, and it started with all the traits of a Christie novel. You know, strangers thrust together in the vacuum of a world, and, and well, I mean, of course, there's a murder. It's, the whole play is set against the backdrop of a children's nursery rhyme, Three Blind Mice, which, when sung slowly and menacingly, is a very, very creepy nursery rhyme that goes like this. Uh, no, I'm not going to try to sing it, I'm just going to read it. Three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run, see how they run. They all ran after the farmer's wife who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? Bit more sinister than I remember it as a kid, but despite this, there is actually, and and this is sort of the surprising thing, despite this sort of sinister tone, there's actually a lot of humour in the play and it became sort of this really fun, not in a silly way, but just in like a fun comedic way. I won't say anymore because the end of the play they do say that we are now part of sort of the mousetrap club or community and that the only reason they can keep running it is if you keep the secret of the killer exactly that, a secret. So you will get nothing out of me. If you want to learn the truth, you'll just have to head along and watch it. It is well worth it. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod. So Head along, they are all free for use for all to enjoy. Okay, time to sail into this adventure book. A book that is not childish fun, but the childhood dream of many, myself included, because it's certainly helped by the fact that Jim Hawkins is a you know, 12, 13-year-old boy and he's the son of this innkeeper. But the fact that the first time I read this book, I would have been a similar age, maybe a bit older, to be quite honest. Uh, but, you know, it, it does help when you can sort of relate to the main characters in those ways. So, you know, I've said it's childhood fun, a story sailing into adventure, but it is actually a very dark book with a litany of adult themes, none more so than the complexity of the villain Long John Silver. But maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. So first, let's take a moment to appreciate how important this novel was and is for pirate literature. This next list is a list of canon pirate ideas that this novel created or popularized. And the list is wooden legs, parrots on shoulders, saying R for yes, 
X marks the spot, buried treasure, dead man's chest, perhaps the most famous of pirates, Long John Silver, of course, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum, dead men tell no tales, the singing of sea shanties, and mutinies. So, I mean, you only have to look at that list to see how influential it is. And there's a couple of Pirates of the Caribbean movie titles in there. So it really is quite incredible that so much of what we have comes from one book. And it's not a particularly long book either. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm going to say 220 pages, maybe. That could be very wrong. Anyways, I think it's time for an overview of the story. Treasure Island is an adventure novel written by Robert Louis Stevenson. Set in the 18th century, it tells the thrilling story of young Jim Hawkins who, through fortuitous circumstance, or you know maybe perhaps unlucky circumstance, comes into the possession of a map before embarking on a perilous voyage to locate buried pirate treasure. Accompanied by a colourful list of characters, you know, one being Long John Silver, the story unfolds on a remote Caribbean island filled with treacherous pirate double-crossings and hidden secrets. I think that's a good place to leave the overview on the curtails of mystery, though I am going to be frank and will explicitly explore and dissect the ending in this novel, just in case you need sort of that little spoiler warning, alert, heads up, whatever you want, just so I don't ruin it for you if you haven't read it, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come to that later and I'll remind you again later. Right, now let's dive into one of the richest parts of this book, the characters. A seafaring adventure in the 18th century was always going to have a curious cast of bandits, but this particular novel really does pepper you with a litany of characters that explores so much. Jim is the, the easy character. He's the protagonist of the story. As I said, he's 12, 13. Maybe, you know, I'm sure he's one we all wanted to be in a sense, though. I don't particularly remember in my youth and in fact every read since, particularly loving him as a sole character on his own. I more sort of loved the opportunity of adventure he'd been afforded. He is young, his bravery does grow throughout the novel, and he has this high sense of morality that really evolves throughout the novel. But I mean, let's get serious for a minute. A story is only as good as their villains, and this one has to be one of the best. Enter Long John Silver. Capable, charismatic, the man with a silver tongue and one wooden leg. He is one of my most loved villains in literature. A true tour de force of being that he bustles his way into the main belly of drama, but with all the care and finesse to slip quietly out the back again when he's finished. Between the two of them, Jim and Silver, the two create this kind of perfect duality between good and evil. Jim brings out the sentimental in Silver, and Silver reveals the complicated world of adulthood to Jim. So, the story unfolds. Jim finds himself on the ship, the Hispaniola, sailing for Skull Island, guided by this mysterious map with the hopes of treasure. Jim is made to work, and ends up spending time down and forming a bond with the one-legged sea cook, which is Long John Silver. Now, it's kind of curious to read it from our perspective in the contemporary day, because at this stage in the story, you don't know who Long John Silver is, but because we are who we are and, and, and the pirate literature has grown so much since then, we probably are really, you know, we're definitely aware of who he is because he's one of the most infamous pirates. So there's there's a very high chance that you've seen or heard of him. But Jim, of course, in this moment, poor little innocent Jim doesn't know until he accidentally finds himself at the bottom of an apple barrel 
and overhears Silver talking to the ship's crew, who, you know, which is actually his motley crew of ruffians, and they discuss mutiny and how they are going to claim the treasure. When they get to the island, mutiny ensues and Jim manages to get away and runs into a character called Ben Gunn, who has been stranded on the island for many years after being left for dead by his fellow pirates on a previous expedition. We get this view of him as a kind of stripped man, debased by time and lack of human interaction, and it inspires sympathy in the reader and also trust. He is seen as a likeable character on the offset due to his sheer will to survive. Ben Gunn, though, is a pirate, though he agrees to help the good guys, which has this lovely interplay between himself and Silver. Why is it that we accept Ben Gunn as a good character from the off? Because he agrees to help the good guys, despite the fact that his antecedents are in piracy and treachery. This is one of the wonderful reasons this book is so loved, at least by me of course, because it delves into the choices of individuals, but also the repercussions of those choices, and how man reacts when faced with the ideals of temptation. Now, just pause for a moment because I am about to start getting into the deeper territories of the spoiler territories, I should say, of those not wanting the ending ruined, so you know, this is your warning, you have been warned. At this stage in the story, the pirates have Jim hostage and find the spot where the treasure is, though find that the treasure itself is gone. There are questions of leadership against Silver when they are looking for the treasure, and Silver quickly realises and understands that the treasure itself is gone, and so pulls Jim aside, and in doing so, changes side. And I say that in inverted commas, because he's gone from now being a pirate to now being one of the good guys. It paints Silver as this really opportunistic and selfish character, because on one hand, we as the reader think that he pulls Jim out of, the, out of a form of kindness for him, and yet he uses Jim as a way to sort of gain favour with the higher up of the good guys, like, hey look, I saved the kid, he's safe, I'm good, and I'm on your side, blah blah blah. And so, it highlights how Silver is prepared to do anything to save his own skin. He views and treats humans as expendable, which gives the reader this kind of contempt, because he is just this almost godly force that seems to move through life unaffected by his actions, regardless of what happens to him. These though, you know, they, they, these kind of characters, these are my favourite kind of villains. These kind of tour de forces in their respective worlds. Moby Dick, the judge from Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. These characters that continue through their wickedness into a sort of ambiguity in the end. But of course, the ambiguity is the sense that maybe Silver also saved Jim because he is fond of him. We never can and never will be able to tell one way or another. And so the novel comes to this kind of really curious ending. And I guess that's sort of the masterful point of it and why I keep coming back to it. On one hand, you spend the whole novel wondering how someone like Long John Silver has survived, owing to his ability to charm and talk his way out of situations without containing the traditional features of someone who you would think could charm. But his skill lies not in the deception of beauty, but in the familiarity of human desire. He panders to man's greedy hearts, as well as sentiment, and so he is able to play men for the fools that they are. And at the end, you might even feel some sympathy for him. You might feel some respect for him, and you want him to succeed in this kind of weird way, despite the fact that you know he is an evil man. And so, he vanishes into the world, and you know he is going to not only be okay, but continue to be a force of reckoning that he is. He is an incredible villain, and one of the better ones in literature. But, that is only one aspect of the ending. The other, of course, is the political, and the political undertones reeking with colonialism. 
Now, this might be backtracking a bit, but the whole novel is portrayed as this relationship between England and its colonies during the height of the British Empire. The story is set in the era of colonial expansion, when England was actively establishing and maintaining colonies around the world. Additionally, the novel touches upon the themes of imperialism and the clash between civilization and what they considered savagery. The search for treasure on the remote treasure island reflects the colonial mindset of exploiting resources in distant lands. The island itself can be seen as a metaphorical representation of the colonies, rich in untapped wealth that foreign powers sought to exploit. The characters' struggle to claim the treasure can be interpreted as a commentary on the imperialistic desire and the lengths in which people will go to to assert dominance and claim the treasure. And so from this, we get the duality between what we can consider established power of Captain Smollett who leads the Hispaniola to the island and the rest. While the exact amount of treasure is never actually specified, it can be sort of estimated based on the time of writing that the treasure would have been worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in that time. For context, a rough estimation is $100,000 back in the 1800s is around 10 million pounds today. A hefty chunk of money to say the least. But interestingly, when they get back to England, it is said that Ben Gunn was given only a thousand pounds, despite the fact that he guarded the treasure. He helped fight for the he helped fight for the treasure. He helped fight the pirates and transport all the treasure back onto the ship. In fact, without Ben Gunn, they and by they I mean the good guys, good guys in inverted commas in this sense, wouldn't have found the treasure and survived. And yet, this power balance is placed upon him might overwrite, and so the money is claimed by the British and handed out as they see fit. So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, they were bastards. In terms of writing style, it is perhaps starting to be a little dated, but that to me only adds to the richness of the story, wanting to be part of a swashbuckling adventure, you know, taken from our current day and thrust into another time, but in general, it is a really nice book to read. It's not overly complicated, it is free-flowing, and I think given that the main protagonist is a boy, or perhaps you know, a young man from the current day, there is there this possibility that certain passages might shy away from the reality of them. You know, the murder passages, the darkness of humanity rearing its ugly head, but it really doesn't, so moments don't feel cheap. It doesn't feel like a kid's story, and instead really does feel like a kid invading a grown-up world. All in all, it's a fantastic book and one that I always look forward to rereading. And so my rating today is a 4.4 out of 5. So, what am I reading this week? This week I am reading Young Mungo, which is the novel about a Protestant character called Mungo, and another boy who is a Catholic living in housing estates in Glasgow, and how they sort of fall in love, and of course it's on the backdrop, it's against the backdrop of a harsh and very manly world. I'm listening to this book, I'm a few hours in. The narrator has a lovely thick Scottish accent, accent which does catch me off guard occasionally, and I'm left wondering what he actually said, which for me at least brings glimmers of humour of what is building to be quite a tough and sad story. But it's good, it was, it was released in 2022, it is written by Douglas Stewart, who was the Booker winner for 2020 for his novel Shuggy Bane, which I also haven't read, but I trust the Book of Gods, and this novel is shaping up nicely, so that's sort of what I'm reading this week. Now, before I close out the show, if you've listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. 
Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And of course, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So I think it's time to end this episode. And today to take us away, I think a bit of wonderful wisdom by our man, Captain Jack Sparrow. And he says, I'm dishonest. And a dishonest man you can always trust to be dishonest. Honestly, it's the honest ones you have to watch out for because you can never predict when they're going to do something incredibly stupid 